VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is uh, a little under the weather today. And uh, who isn't these days? <laughs> so it seems everybody is sick. It's really getting out around there, um, and uh, no doubt we're going to see a lot more illness as uh, the holidays approach and uh, people get together and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, all the old rules apply, don't they? Uh, keep your hands washed and wear your mask in, um, you know, public places where there are a lot of people, especially people you're not, not sure about or don't know. <laughs> um, it's all, you know prevent uh, illness from spreading and uh, especially for uh, those more vulnerable people because we've seen the surge of course um, in cases of uh, influenza and RSV and COVID amongst uh, little ones especially the children who are having a harder time fighting it all off um, because they're encountering it for the very first time unlike many of uh, the rest of us and um, of course uh, hospitals are being inundated with uh, with youngsters and now uh, with seniors because influenza as we all know if you've had the flu the actual flu influenza a or b it's not pretty it's a nasty old thing and it's not easily gotten over and um, you can if you have vulnerabilities you're going to get very 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 sick so uh, let's all think of each other as we head into the holiday season Are you trying to get out of paradise this morning? It's a little bit of a mess, I gotta say. Uh, A dump truck struck a pole there at the uh, roundabout on Kenmount Road. Uh, If you're familiar with the area, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's uh, knocked out power to a couple of uh, houses there, about 150 homes or so. Um, And for the um, intermediate school, so they're going to be... um, closing down classes for the next little while anyway until that's resolved. So there were some lines across the road and that sort of thing, but it's causing quite the traffic nightmare in paradise. If you're trying to get out of paradise this morning, good luck to you is all I've got to say. I took a call from uh, Matt White, actually. He used to work here, and uh, he said, uh, uh, every direction I've tried, he says, I come up against (laughs) traffic and I can't get out. So, um, Be careful out there. Use your patience and uh, you'll get there where you need to go um, safely with any luck. Well, this is depressing, isn't it? I'm looking out. It's 9.02 in the morning. I'm looking out through uh, the glass, several panes of glass now, out towards Kenmount Road, and it looks like it's dusk. Uh, It's absolutely depressing. This rain, drizzle, and fog that we've been um, encountering on the eastern portion of the island anyway is uh, enough to uh, make you want to cry. It's it's really something. I don't know if we've seen the sun at all now in December month. And now with the days shorter, tomorrow is the solstice, of course. It's going to start getting, the days are going to start getting uh, longer as of tomorrow. Um, or daylight hours, I should say. People always say, the days don't get extended. It's the daylight hours. Yes, I understand. But you know how it is. Um, anyway, th- we are going to start to see the, you know, a greater amount of daylight, but come on with it is all I got to say. I know now why our ancestors used to, 
gather in places like <laughs> Stonehenge and other places all over the world to celebrate the solstice because, boy, it's uh, getting a little bit um, heavy. <laughs> um, well, this is the time of year when people are traveling home for the holidays and for a group of about 220 Newfoundlanders stranded at Pearson Airport in Toronto, getting home for Christmas is something they're not sure that they're going to be able to do. Uh, we were talking to a number of passengers yesterday in the VOCM newsroom, including former Marystown Mayor Sam Sinyard, who say they're getting the runaround from WestJet and they believe their rights as passengers have been violated. So we're hoping to get an update today from those passengers and uh, perhaps even talk to Woody French, who was... Uh, the man who spearheaded that uh, passenger bill of rights for uh, people who are traveling and uh, left in the kind of circumstances that this group of Newfoundlanders are uh, left in in Toronto Pearson. They're not getting the answers that they're looking for in terms of um, what happened, when they can expect to get out. Some of them are now being told that they can, they might be able to get out of uh, Toronto and back home to Newfoundland. On the 26th, that's uh, pretty sad news, especially for families with young children. Um, so it's uh, it's a difficult time for a lot of people. And uh, if anybody has any thoughts on that, uh, you're welcome to give us a call. Um, Health care, of course, continues to dominate headlines. And um, I, I, I keep hearing the f- refrain over and over and over again uh, whenever the topic comes up among uh, friends and acquaintances. Uh, people often say, well, boy, you better hope you don't get sick. Isn't that uh, a pretty sad state of affairs when people are actually worried that they might become ill and have to rely on the healthcare system? According to all the news that we're hearing, it sounds like it's at the worst ebb that it's ever been in. Well, the provincial government has now established an advisory committee to provide advice on healthcare infrastructure on the Northeast Avalon. I'm not sure if infrastructure is the problem right now. It seems to be human resources. The Healthcare Infrastructure Advisory Committee will provide guidance in an effort to meet existing and projected healthcare infrastructure needs in the region. And um, one would think that this should have been put together, I suppose, before we heard about the replacement of St. Clair's, maybe? Uh, a cart before the horse, I'm not sure, just thinking out loud now. But the committee will also look at the best locations for clinical services in the region. The committee is chaired by Dr. Pat Parfrey, of course. He was uh, part of the group uh, behind um, the uh, Health Accord. It includes members who have experience and expertise in acute care, long-term care, mental health and addictions, ambulatory care, and community-based services. By the way, I was speaking to a gentleman yesterday who uh, is in the Gander area, and um, his father had been taken to hospital, James Payton Memorial Hospital in Gander, via ambulance, and um, he had gone up to the hospital to check on his father after he found out that he'd been taken to hospital in an ambulance, and was shocked to find out that his uh, father was still in the ambulance in the parking lot. Uh, Apparently, he was told by uh, some of the um, paramedics there that uh, they were waiting to get in, and there were two or three ambulances there, if not more. Uh, all waiting to get into emergency with patients on board, and they had been they'd been told that the wait would be about four hours. Um, so it's happening just about everywhere. We heard from a woman on open line yesterday from Bayvert, who was also expressing some of those same sentiments. Uh, she's having trouble getting a doctor. She's from Lassie, 
and uh, she's being told she has to go to Grand Falls, Windsor or Springdale, which is a fair distance, and uh, even then, no guarantee she's going to see a doctor. So she expressed some uh, frustrations there as well. And now we're hearing that the ER at the hospital in Bonavista, which had been a problem all through the summer months, and then the uh, government had, had announced that it had made some uh, real strides in uh, trying to address that uh, human resources situation there. Now we're finding out that um, the ER will be closed for a big part over the uh, Christmas holidays, and when it is open, it's going to be virtual care. So a lot of things happening in healthcare and other things. Um, there's lots on the go. Also very encouraging to see how many people are uh, coming forward to make donations um, as we head into the holiday season. Um, and so that's very encouraging to see people understanding the need that's out there and wanting to help. So it's not all doom and gloom. There are some very bright lights there. And um, before we uh, go to a break, I'm going to start taking some calls because we got some people who are lined up. We're going to start the show this morning with uh, Krista Babbage, who I spoke with yesterday. Krista, hello. Hi, how are you? Good. So you and I spoke in the newsroom yesterday about uh, your situation. You're at Toronto Pearson. You're a Newfoundlander stuck there uh, because of the cancellation in the flight from WestJet. Uh, So what's the latest? Uh, So basically, after standing in line for four hours last night, we finally got a hotel voucher. They'll only issue them for one night at a time. So they expect us to keep going back to the um, airport every day, standing in line for three hours to do it all over again. Um, and my husband, they refused to book us on Air Canada at the counter. They refused, even though I was showing them their passenger rights, that if they couldn't get us on a flight within 48 hours, they had to put us on another airline. And they said they didn't have, like, the system wouldn't let them. It was a competitor, yada, yada, yada. Um, so my husband actually started calling, well, call the 1-800 number, like, seven or eight in the morning yesterday before we even went back to the airport. And so he was seven hours and 13 minutes um, waiting to speak to somebody um, on their 1-800 number. And that person finally booked us on Air Canada, but not until the 23rd at 9.20 in the night, not getting in until 2 a.m. on Christmas Eve. Um, You know, at least that's better than what some other people are doing dealing with but still not a great solution because you know we're both supposed to be working this week and um, unfortunately we just got up um, and I seen that there's eight seats available on a flight coming from Air Canada at 9 30 this morning but we talked to the agents last night at Air Canada um, in the hotel in the airport sorry and they said they don't have the capability to do any changes in bookings at the airport and that you would have to call a 1-800 number. And it was a two hour wait last night with Air Canada. They couldn't do anything. Um, My husband's just calling there now, but unfortunately by the time we get through to the 1-800 number, that flight's gonna be gone. So if somebody could have helped us at the airport right now to switch those flights over, um, we would probably be on our way at 9.30 this morning. But so I guess we've just kind of learned our lesson. We're gonna set our alarm for five tomorrow morning and start this process all over again if there's seats available. And uh, for the benefit of our listeners, you're traveling with a little fella. Yes, he's five. So um, I'm glad, well, I'm glad that we're booked before Christmas because um, he's really looking forward to Santa coming. Um, and the 
Antonov airplane that he asked for um, from Santa. But we're also being told that there is a forecast of really nasty weather in Toronto on the night of December 23rd. So it really doesn't look good to get out that day. So we're doing everything we can to try to get our flights switched earlier. Like I said last night, there was nothing available, no flights. There was when we started calling. Um, and then by the time we, we got through to Air Canada, it was kind of sold out again. Like there's one and two seats popping up. Like we don't mind splitting up two of us. Like one of us will go with our son and the other one would go on a different flight. Like that doesn't bother us. Um, but yeah, we're in the situation now where <laughs> it's disappointing because we can get home. We could pack up right now and be to the airport in 15 minutes, but nobody is able to transfer us on the flight. So the bottom line is, uh, through no fault of your own, the flight was cancelled. You can't seem to get the answers you're looking for, and you've been left entirely to your own devices. Uh, pretty much. I mean, they're giving us hotel and meal vouchers, but making us stand in the lineup for three hours every day um, at the airport to get those. They have still not provided us in any information on what the reason was for the delay. Um, the manager actually at the counter told me that yesterday, well, two days ago, there was four schedulers. There was only four schedulers for Westchester, and three of them walked off the job. So I think this has to do with what's going on. I don't think this was just a maintenance issue. I think I have a feeling this is a bigger issue. Well, we have uh, Woody French waiting on the line. He is the man who helped to uh, spark the whole idea of a passenger bill of rights. And uh, I'd like to get his take on what's happening to you. Will you keep us up to date, Krista? Yes, absolutely. Really appreciate your time. Hopefully you get out as, uh, sooner rather than later. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Uh, and without uh, further ado, uh, Woody French, you heard what uh, Krista's had to say. What do you make of it all? Well, it's certainly a flashback for me. Uh, about uh, 15 years ago, I made a phone call to Brian Medor, uh during the Christmas period talking about people that got stuck uh, in Toronto, Montreal, and uh, Halifax as a result of flight disruptions. And um, it's really uh, disappointing uh, to hear that you know, a number of people are stuck in uh, in Toronto in basically the same type of situation. And, of course, um, the amount of information that's being given to them, the amount of help that's being given to them is minimal and, in some cases, none whatsoever. So you remember, Linda, when, uh, when the Airline Passengers Bill of Rights came in effect and I was talking to you about it and you asked me, uh, what I thought of it, and I said, I hope it just wasn't words on paper that there was going to be enforcement and that the airlines were going to be held accountable for this. And, um, you know, we're still hearing these horrendous stories about families being divided, of flights being cancelled, and no information being given to people when they can uh, move again or it's weeks. And it's just not acceptable as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's. Um, it's unbelievable. I know the Minister of Transport has done some things with regard to to tweaking the um, the uh, legislation and that. But again, you know, I, I go back to the airlines themselves. Um, I know that WestJet um, has Boeing 787s. They have Boeing 7, uh, 737s, the newest ones. 
uh, Air Canada the same way. And I don't know why they can't task an extra section, why they can't bring a 767 in or a, a 787 or something like that and get these people out of Pearson. I mean, it's, it's just horrendous what's happening um, to the people of Canada as a result of, um, and you can only chalk it up to poor service uh, by um, the airlines in Canada. Thanks to your hard work, we now have a passenger bill of rights. But as far as you can see, is this is that passenger bill of rights being violated in this particular case? Well, it seems it, to me it seems like right now we don't know the situation or the excuse that they're using for this. Uh, I know that um, you know for for the past number of years, you know, most of the stuff has been talked. Uh, they use the the deadly word of safety, and um, in a lot of cases. They're just using safety as an excuse to try to get them out of having to uh, compensate uh, passengers. <clears throat> and, um, you know, when you're with uh, thousands of people in Pearson that are having trouble with their flights and you got to find a, um, a phone to use to try to get through. And, I mean, you heard that lady say that, you know, uh, they plan on a minimum of two hours wait I mean, can you imagine, uh, even if you're lucky enough to get a hotel room, sitting in a hotel room with a phone to your ear for two hours? I mean, it's it's totally, totally, totally unacceptable. And I tell everybody, you know, if you're going, if you get into into a situation where you're not getting what you believe that you're entitled to, and uh, what you're entitled to is on it's on the website. Uh, you can. Get it fairly easy, uh, access it, and so on and so forth. But what it seems like the airlines are trying to do is outweigh you. So, first of all, their first um, um, comment is, we can't do nothing to help you. Uh, we're short-staffed. Uh, we're, um, well, whatever excuse they can come up with. And um, that's the first step. And basically, in my opinion, and it's only my opinion, I think what they're trying to do is outweigh you so that you're not going to take any further action against you. Eventually, you'll go away uh, upset, but you'll go away and uh, they'll be, um, you know, they won't have to pay any compensation. And I encourage everybody to let your MPs know, because this is federal legislation and our members of parliament are there to help us and uh, their constituents, and uh, I would think that they would certainly be more than willing to help their constituents. Although I had um, I had um, MPs offices that have told people that uh, they don't get into that. But I mean, this is federal legislation, and the airlines are not adhering to it. And if it were you and I that were uh, not adhering to a law, then action would be taken against us, and it doesn't seem to be happening. In the case of the airlines, they have a very powerful lobby in Ottawa, and I've experienced that over my years of lobbying for an airline passenger's bill of rights. And um, it seems right now, you know, that the tail is wagging the dog when it comes to these uh, these regulations. But, you know, know your rights. And then the other thing I would caution people about doing, too, is not taking your frustrations out on the staff at the um, – at the counters, because these people are stressed to the max. Uh, you know, you can imagine if in Pearson, uh, with the volume of passengers that go through there, if they get two aircraft that, for whatever reason, have problems, then 
it takes every minute to try to get you know things straightened out there. So my my advice is to go after the airlines, get a supervisor, uh, write your MP, contact the media. Whatever you can do, um, uh, it's, it's beneficial. And as a matter of fact, one of the people that's stuck in Halifax that I had a conversation with is Sam Senior. Sam is the former mayor of um, of Marystown, and he's stuck in the same situation um, in Toronto. And it's you know it's um, the horror stories continue to happen. And this is I don't know 15, 16 years after I started this um, uh, this quest to try to get better. Um, um, better um, accommodating of passengers in, in in Canada as they try to get from point A to point B. And I still maintain that once the once you sign or once you pay your money, that's a contract with the airlines, and, and they have a responsibility to get to you destination in a timely manner. And two weeks, in my opinion, is certainly not a timely manner. Woodrow French, I really appreciate your time on this. And if you do hear anything further, or I know you've been in contact with, like you say, Sam and others, uh, let us know. Thanks so much. Okay, Linda, thanks so much. And um, Merry Christmas to you and all the staff at um, at uh, VOCM and Stingray. Same to you and a Happy New Year to you. Thanks. Same. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. We have quite a few people waiting on the lines. Please be patient. We'll get to you as soon as possible. Thanks. And we're back. We are going now to the Bayvert Peninsula to speak with the Deputy Mayor of Middle Arm. He's also a firefighter there, Morris Chippett. Hello, Morris. Yeah, good morning. What's on your mind this morning? Uh, uh, yesterday at uh, around a little, a little after 10, uh, we responded to uh, the fire brigade. responded to a medical emergency here in Middle Arm, and uh, with a guy that was after blacking out and falling down three times. So uh, we responded, and the fire chief called nine one one at quarter after ten. It, we were told that there was neither ambulance in Bayvert, but there will be one coming from La Sea. Okay, well and good. A few minutes after they called back and they said that no, there was a mistake made. They dispatched ambulance to Middle Arm or Middle Coast, somewhere up on the Avalon Peninsula, but the ambulance will be coming from the sea. Okay, you know, anyone can make a mistake. So, uh, then about, I would say about 45 minutes after the first call was made, they called back, no, there's neither ambulance available. The ambulance in the sea has gone to uh, Grand Falls. Uh, we want you to call 911 again. So to get the guy's dead, wait a minute, he called 911 again. No, there's ambulance in, in route to to that call. Okay, this went on. The ambulance arrived in Middle Arm after 3.30 in the evening. So that's over five hours from the time the initial call was made until an ambulance showed up. Now, that's just not acceptable. I know you, you, there's only so many ambulances you can have, and if there was a couple on the Bayberg Peninsula that was out, there was nothing you could do about that. But an ambulance could have been there from Grand Falls in two and a half hours, or from Deer Lake in two hours. So I don't know why. I mean, this is long enough for the ambulance to come from uh, Clarenville. Eventually, the ambulance did, it, did get her. I don't know where it came from, but, I mean, this is just not acceptable uh, at this day and age. So five hours between the time that you called and then you got this runaround and confusion for ever so long uh, before you finally got this poor gentleman in an ambulance into hospital. 
Yeah, and then, then he had a two hour, he had a, a two, two and a half hour drive to, to get to Grand Falls after he got in the ambulance. I think it was pretty much close to four o'clock before he left there. And uh, no, it's not acceptable. I mean, we got two, we got two uh, mines on this, on this peninsula. And also, uh, we got uh, a major logging industry. I just shudder to think what would happen if we had a, we had a major accident or a major accident on the highway. Um, with this sort of, this kind of service is just I mean just not acceptable. Is it, have you encountered this kind of thing before? Not to this degree, no. And you're a firefighter there, so you you're familiar with emergency situations. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with emergency situations. Yeah, I mean we respond to them when we're called, right? And I don't know. I just this morning I just felt like I had to call and let, let the public know what's what's happening. I mean our health care system is. There's a lot to be desired. How I mean, many, yeah. how many yeah. ambulances are, are normally available in your re- area? Usually two or three. I know that a lot of times I've been at Bay Burton and two ambulances there at the, at the lot, and then we got ambulance service in La Cie, right? But uh, I just, and, I, and, and yesterday, I mean, since, apparently since Friday, there was no emergency services in Bay Burton. Yesterday, there was no doctor in Bay Burton, so there was no, no way you could get any help there. Right, so you had no choice but to send them on the on the road to Grand Falls. No choice, only send them to Grand Falls, and have to wait for for an over five hours for ambulance. I don't know. I don't know what. I'm, I don't know what's going to happen. And I know there's probably just one story. There's probably others, but this this seems a bit extreme to me. Well, Morris, I really appreciate your call this morning. Uh, hopefully, that gentleman is doing okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, when he got to Grand Falls, he did get the, the treatment that he needed. Right. And he's been taken care of. So, and I think most people will find, you know, once you get in, yeah. the care you get is second to none. That's right. But the trouble is getting in. The trouble is getting in, and like I said, in this situation, the trouble was getting in, getting an ambulance. You know, I mean, a guy that he actually I mean, he fell down, blacked it three times, fell down, his jeep cut open. I mean, it was just, and we wanted to be taken in a vehicle, and then we I'm afraid to move him. You know, but they didn't receive medical attention first. Morris Chippett, I really appreciate your time uh, this morning. Uh, thanks so much. It is Morris Chip, not Chippett. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Morris uh, Chippett. No, uh, when it, when he came from England, some people kept it, kept it, it part, but uh, out in this way on the favorite peninsula were chips. <laughs> 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 well, that's all right. You 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 don't waste you get, any time. <laughs> when you get back to England, you'll find that they are the, basically the same family. But uh, well, like a lot of places in Newfoundland, hey, bye. That's right. Yeah. yeah, when it's not until you say it out loud, you realize, oh, that's actually the same name. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I really appreciate okay. it. Thanks. You have a good day. You too. Bye bye. Uh, we're going to go now to Crystal, who has been waiting on the line ever so long. Hello, Crystal. Hi, it's Crystal Alexander. Hi, what's on your mind? I'm the organizer for Gifts for Dads in Labrador City. It's the first year that we ran it. Basically, it's a fundraiser for low-income and single fathers because there's resources available for mothers but not dads in our community. Interesting. So what made you um, look at this area that needed to be met? I had a friend reach out who was a single father, and he was asking me if there was any resources available for single dads. 
and I couldn't find anything that was there. So then I decided to take upon it myself to start something up. Excellent. So uh, what what are you looking for exactly? What do you mean? Well, what? Uh, how do people participate, or how you know? What are you oh. looking for in terms of donations? So social media has been a big help with um, advertising the gifts for dads. Uh, I started advertising back in November to take names anonymously for uh, to receive gifts, and whoever had their names and addresses put in had a gift done up, which contained gift cards, toiletries, clothing, um, and some other surprises. Well, that's lovely. And so you do you get a list of names? Do people um, tell you, you know, I know this man in the community. Um, he might like to get a smile on his face this Christmas. How does that work? Yeah, anybody messages me or the person that's struggling has messaged me themselves and asking to participate in it. We've had 14 people who submitted applications to receive a gift, and they were all delivered there two days ago. And I'm still getting names on Facebook for dads uh, just before Christmas, even though it's the cutoff date. We're making arrangements so that we can fill up for everybody. So I'm hoping to spread awareness so that we can have a bigger turnout next year and I know when things are just getting started and it's the first year, it's a little bit hectic and organizing and getting people aware of what's available in this town. So what kind of gifts have have you been distributing? They've been gifts of $100 value this year because we had some very very generous donations from Mission Kitty, Scott Penn, and other individuals in the town. The support has been phenomenal. Um, yeah, people have been really generous this Christmas, and I'm sure many families have really appreciated it. That's such a wonderful uh, gesture, Crystal. Uh, uh, thanks so much for telling us a little bit about it. And anybody who wants to follow this along or keep it in mind for next year, um, you have a Facebook page, is that correct? Yeah, well, not one made specifically for Gifts for Dads, but that's definitely a good idea for next year. Well, that's lovely. And this is all in the Lab uh, City area? Yes. Excellent. Well, Crystal, uh, you're doing wonderful work. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope you have a wonderful holiday. Same to you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And uh, we'll be back right after this. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And we're back. We are going to go now to uh, Anthony Morante, the plastic campaigner with Oceana Canada. And uh, this is a a pretty auspicious day, Anthony. Uh, What's going on? Hey, good morning. How are you? Great. So uh, the the official expansion of the ban on single-use plastics, that comes into effect today, is that correct? Comes into effect today. So it is a very, we'll say, like, detailed, layered ban, but the first step comes into force today. So what that means is those six banned items, those six-pack ring carriers, plastic bags, stir sticks, et cetera, 
those things will stop being manufactured and imported into into Canada for sale. So picture we have a big stockpile warehouse of all these single-use plastics. We're no longer filling that warehouse anymore. We're just taking away from it until the pile runs empty. You know, it's strange, but I was watching a, an old sitcom the other day. It was dated in the 90s. And uh, in the in the scene, there was somebody who was eating uh, chips or something like that. And you could hear the crackling of the bag in the bag. And, and, and I was thinking, I was looking, as I was looking at it, I was thinking, this is 1992, 93, and that bag is still out there somewhere. It, yeah, every, uh, every piece of plastic usually lasts for about 100 or more years, um, no matter what part of the environment it's put into. And it's really important that this ban comes into effect today because what it means is that when it is in full effect, uh, when there's no more plastic being manufactured, imported and sold in Canada, it will equate to about 33 billion, with a B, units of single-use plastic that Canada consumes. And for a country of 38 million people, that is a huge number of plastic that gets into the environment, that gets into our oceans and that fills our landfills. So these single-use plastics all have a purpose, uh, ostensibly. <laughs> Some of them we can get away without, but others do serve a purpose in, in our consumer world. Uh, so how will they be replaced? Yeah, so I always like to preface this with um, the notion that the convenience of single-use plastic comes at a really devastating cost <laughs> to our environment. Something that we use for to five minutes, either a coffee cup or a fork or a bag, and then we generally toss it or put it in the blue bin thinking that it's being recycled. Those things last for hundreds of years. They get into our oceans. They fill the stomachs of whales. They entangle sea birds. They turn into little microplastics that kind of get back to us when we eat food. So it's really important to remember that although we do think they are convenient, it's highly inconvenient in the long term for the environment and our own health. But when you come down to those functions, there are a lot of alternatives to things. I always like to lead with, do you need it to start with? (laughs) If I get takeout, do I need to get a fork and a knife and a little sachet of ketchup when it's being delivered to my home that I have a fork and knife and I have ketchup in the fridge? No. But in instances where you do, let's say, need an item, there are a lot of alternatives. There, you could swap them out for glass or for metal or for wood or paper products, or you could install these reusable systems. Like think back to the, the 80s and the 70s when your pop bottle, when you were done with it, you brought it back or you got milk, you brought the container back and that was cleaned and refilled. Those systems can come back to Canada and really make a new economy in that sector. Uh, for sure. And uh, like you say now, it's just uh, giving that, that little bit of extra thought when you get your lunch or you bring your lunch to work with you, instead of grabbing a plastic fork on the way uh, at your local convenience store or the restaurant that you go to or whatever the case may be, bring your fork with you. Perry, and it's one of those things that I, I really encourage people to give that extra thought, put that extra effort if they can. But groups like Oceana Canada, we're actually looking to change the system. We're actually looking to have these large sweeping regulations put in force by government or working with industry to have these sweeping changes where you as a consumer don't have to put that extra thought, don't have to go that extra way, that that is 
the default that's given to you, that the reusable, sustainable option is what is out there on the market. And we kind of move away from this harmful single-use plastic option. It's so difficult to get away from, though. I mean, I'm sitting here um, on the air, and uh, right now, one, two, three, four, five things just within, you know, a, a single foot of me uh, are all plastics that are going to end up in a landfill somewhere. Yeah, and I'm going to guess at this hour, they're most likely coffee cups <laughs> around. One, is, one of them is. Uh, <laughs> one is a, a thing of um, uh, scotch tape. Uh, another is a, um, uh, um, a dispenser for... Um, uh, hand sanitizer, uh, uh, a marker, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, it's one of those things that plastic does exist everywhere. Um, we're not arguing that, like, all plastics should be banned. There are a lot of things that plastic makes that are not ending up the landfill immediately that we're using uh, many, many times over that serve a purpose. But the key thing here is that the plastic industry also creates a lot of things that are used for three seconds and sent away when there are alternatives to it, uh, that a lot of systems and businesses have operated on this single-use, easily disposed of method where they think that when something's going into a blue bin, that that's actually the responsible thing, that recycling is the answer to it. But devastatingly, <laughs> in Canada, only 8% of our plastic is recycled. A lot of those things, like a coffee cup or a chip bag, or a um, stir stick or a six-pack ring carrier, those are made out of plastics that actually aren't recyclable. There's a lot of change in the industry that where these durable plastics that used to be recyclable have moved away from it because it's cheaper, it's easier, it's uh, flashier with labeling. So it's one of those things that we at Oceania Canada really push for is to have these changes in the system, in government, in regulation that move us back to where there is plastic and we do need it, that it is highly recyclable, that it's recoverable. We move away from these non-recyclable, very uh, negatively impacting the environment plastics that we're trying to really create the best environment we can. And as you pointed out, plastics break down, but they break down into microplastics. They break down into these tiny little things that just start to accumulate and become ever-present. You're breathing it in, you're swallowing it, you're everything. Exactly. And for a coastal city like St. John's, that is uh, your, your best example of what is breaking down those plastics is the ocean. You have salt water, you have light, you have these wave motions. So once little bits of plastic make it into the ocean, those crashing waves are breaking it down continuously. But a lot of the really good fish you want to eat or a lot of the great seabirds around you, they mistaken those for food and then it gets ingested. And then when we eat them, we're eating that plastic. So it's this life cycle of we need to keep these plastics out of the environment. We need to keep as many of those plastics that are ending up in landfill or the environment off of the shelves. And we need to try to make a very clean economy from it. So the expansion is officially in place today. Anthony Morante, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you.
Anthony Morante is a plastic campaigner with Oceana Canada, and the official expansion of the ban on uh, single-use plastics comes into effect today. Thanks, Dave, for bringing that to my attention. Uh, we'll be back right after this. And we're back, and we're going to go now to um, Constable with the RCMP in Deer Lake, Grace Russell. Hello. Hi there. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. To what do we owe this pleasure? Well, I'm just phoning today to make uh, all the folks aware that we are hosting a food drive today at the Foodland in the beautiful Deer Lake. Uh, on the beautiful West Coast in aid of the Deer Lake Regional Food Bank. Excellent. So you're set up there? We are set up here until 5 o'clock, and if it's busy, then we'll stay, we'll stay later. Excellent. And what prompted this action? Well, uh, we've been doing this for a number of years. A group of RCMP officers get together in different districts, different areas that we work. And, uh, and hold different functions over the holidays, one in particular, of course, being the food drive. And uh, we haven't had an opportunity to do one here on the West Coast for a little while with COVID, and we really want to get this up and going again and uh, make it an annual event and uh, perhaps every year hold it at a different, uh, a different location, a different uh, supermarket. So this year it's at the Foodland in Deer Lake, and we're super excited that, uh, that we're able to do this. It's snowing here, but the road conditions are excellent, so we want people to come out and show support. Oh, so it sounds very Christmassy. It's beautiful. It's always beautiful on the West Coast. Of course Even it is. As a police officer, I guess you see firsthand in a lot of cases uh, the need that's out there. Absolutely, uh, especially around this time of year, and, and we have a lot of people that you know, are traveling home uh, for Christmas and there's that extra pressure on, on families, you know, to to be able to provide and things like that. And, and some people, of course, are in are in the uh, unfortunate situation of, you know, not being, being able to do that. And our food banks are an incredible resource in our community. I can't stress it enough. Uh, I mean, we often have clients to avail of the uh, of the service and it's, it's just tremendous the volunteers and, and you know the community support that goes into you know making these uh, these organizations function is is just magnificent well rcmp constable grace russell with deer lake rcmp uh, good luck with the food drive this afternoon uh, in deer lake what time is it from when to when it's from at 9 to 5, but if we're busy, we will stay as late as we have to. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great. I hope uh, that a lot of people turn out and uh, pick up some items and then drop them off to you. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. And I'd like to put a shout out to everyone that has supported us so far. It's still early in the morning, but we've gotten a tremendous amount of donations, both monetary and, uh, and, and food. So I'd like to thank everyone so far who's contributed. Have a wonderful Christmas. Same to you. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, we're going to go now to Dan. You're on the air. Hello, Dan. Yes, hello. How are you? I'm not too bad. How are you this morning? Good. That's good. Uh, wish everybody a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year for me. All your listeners. Well, you just did. Okay, thank you. Uh, what I'm calling about is uh, is the rent rent subsidy. Okay. Uh, it's up to five hundred dollars, I believe. Uh, there's a rent rent subsidy aside from the benefit that um, 
the provincial government uh, has been providing the $500? Yes, that's right. It's a one-time top-up? Is that the one you're talking about? That's right, yes. Okay, yeah. Yes, uh, uh, I uh, don't have a computer and I don't have email or anything, so I was wondering if you had a number that I could call to uh, apply for it. Ah, good question. I don't have it uh, readily available, but what I can do, if you keep listening, I will uh, give out the number. Is that okay with you, or I'll get Dave to call you back? That'd be great. Yeah, and if anybody is listening and has that readily available, then uh, just uh, keep listening. We'll, we'll get it to you some way. Okay, thank you very much. All right, all the best to you now, Dan. All the best to you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. We're going to go now to Bob Tucker. Hello, Bob. Hello. A Merry Christmas to you, my dear, and all your listeners. This is old Bob Tucker. Merry uh, Christmas and, to you, Bob. Uh, and to all the doctors and nurses and healthcare workers and everybody in the world. I wish everybody a merry, merry, merry Christmas and many, many more. And may the old man above be with you all, because you're all good people. Well, you're full uh, of the festive spirit this morning? Yes. And I'm a, full, a, well, no, I'm a full of a lot of bulls, too. <laughs> <laughs> on, see? But anyhow, you know, I'm really teed off with a lot of things in life. Because there's a lot of good things, but some things don't make sense to me. Like, for instance, just a small example, a drugstore. I had to go for my woman to get pills in there for the other day. I had to get eight lots of pills. And eight times they charged me $6 for each one. My woman is a sick woman. And we worked all our lives to, to try to help everybody. But it doesn't seem like... They give a damn about us now. They'd rather we were dead because they won't help us. No way. There seems like they're keeping us down every way we turn in food, health, uh, everything. Why so is that know? the dispensing fee you're talking about? Yes, my love. Why? Why? Like, I understand that a drugstore or anything got to have money over it to keep going. But, I mean, be real. We're old people. We need help. We need our government to help us now, not when we're dead. Excuse me. No, I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, so there's nothing that can help you with that expense when you're... you're... Oh, we, we got nothing. Absolutely nothing. My car is in the garage now, and it'll be two two weeks before they get the passport. Uh, and I can't afford... What do I do? I can't walk to the drugstore, and to get anybody to help you today, as I sign the, oh, I don't know, my love, what's the world coming? It's not the world, it's the people that's in it. The, the, the people says, oh, a animal is dumb, but there's no dumb animals in this world. There's a lot of dumb people. Bob, I hear your frustration on that one. Oh, my God, I'm really frustrated. I, I, I got an air tooth in my head, but I'd bite the top off a nail. Oh, well, if anyone has any uh, thoughts on that or can give us any answers as to uh, why you continue to be charged the dispensing fee for a variety of um, uh, prescriptions, uh, I'd like to hear what they have to say. Like I say, I understand that people got to make money. You've got to have money to stay alive. You know, I understand that quite clearly. I'm not as stunned as I look. I'm an old man, but I'm not stunned by no means. 
But I don't understand what's, what's going on with the, uh, in this world today. It's getting worse and worse every every. Excuse me for saying it. Every damn day is getting worse. Things they're coming up with. Oh my God, my car's in the garage, and they got to send away for a part, and it'll take X amount of days to get the parts sent in, which I understand. I understand, but have a little bit of sympathy on us with groceries and, and drugs and stuff that we got to have. Yeah, it's more than an inconvenience. It it really really affects your uh, your lifestyle. Yes, I was going to say they charge you for water, but they're doing that already. And if they could put sugar tax on water, they would. Oh, my God. Bob, uh, hopefully you get your car back soon. I don't know if I can afford to run it because right now, right now, my love, I get I get $1,800 a month. And tie my hands up, at the end of the month, I have got $130 left. For what? If my light goes, if my if my car breaks down, what do I do with that? Uh, I I'm so confused, my bill. Bob, uh, uh, thanks for your call this morning. And listen, uh, do try to have a merry Christmas, won't you? I I, I wish everybody a merry Christmas, my love. Everybody, you know. But there's some things in life you've got to try to understand. You. Like, I understand the government bringing in people from other countries, poor-off people. Yes, I'd do the same myself. If somebody came along and wanted a, a cup of tea, a loaf of bread, or a place to stay, I'd open my door for them. But I, wouldn't you help your family first? You know, I'd help anybody. Anybody. Well, it doesn't matter what color, race, or creed, my love. But what That's you're running up against now with, with the car thing is, is a global problem with uh, supply chain issues and the like, yeah. yeah I, I, it's global, but it's man-made. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's too crazy to, to speak about. That's why I, I said a dumb animal. There's no dumb animals in this world, my love. Bob, uh, I appreciate your call this morning, uh, and uh, hopefully you get uh, that that situation sorted out very soon. Yes, my my, my woman is dying, right? She's full of cancer, and, I, I, and I'm very upset. Well, very, very upset with the way things were being treated. We worked hard all our lives to build this country to, to help us get along. I never draw on unemployment or welfare or anything. I worked my fingers to the bone. So and so did and we've reared our children the best way we could, and they're gone away. Uh, they they can't afford to stay here. So the dispensing fee just adds insult to injury. Well, there's that many things that I could name up. I take the rest of the day. You know, because like uh, uh, some things I understand. Yes, I know I'm not very I'm not the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, but. Not because there's snow on the roof. That don't mean the fire's out. Bob, thanks for your call. And I think you're doing a very good job, and you keep up the good work, my dear, because you you put enjoyment in people's lives on radio. Only for you, I, I don't think it'd be worth getting up. Well, that's... That's very good to hear because sometimes, you know, when you got this microphone in front of your face and you're talking all day, you don't know if uh, it's uh, bringing people value or not. And it's good to hear that it is. 
You don't realize, my love. I know you're a bright girl. You're you're only a young girl. You're a bright woman, and you put enjoyment in millions and millions, well, not millions and millions, but many many people's lives, and makes their day glow. So you're doing wonderful, wonderful work there at VOCM. Bob, all all the best to you now. Thank yes, you very much. To you and your family and all your listeners. And may the whole man above be with us. Oh, Indeed. Everybody. All right. Bye-bye. Over and out. Over and out. Uh, old Bob Tucker there. Um, wow. Uh, he's uh, going through some stuff and uh, frustrated, obviously, and for good reason. Uh, if you have any thoughts on what he's had to say, by all means, give us a call. We're up to news time now with Noah Shepard. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. And we had a rollicking start to the show in the first hour. The lines have uh, freed up a little bit. So if you were trying to get through before and weren't having much luck, now is your chance to do so. We are going to go now to the MHA for Mount Pearl Southlands. Paul Lane, hello. Yes, good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing just uh, fantastic. Linda, um, I guess this will be my last call for uh, 2022. So I just want to, first of all, just thank uh, you guys at uh, Open Line and at VOCM in general for uh, allowing me uh, the opportunity uh, many, many times to get my uh, message out to the people who uh, elected me and, and to people generally in Newfoundland and Labrador as it relates to any number of issues and concerns that uh, people have. And, uh, you know, I, I know sometimes, you know, I, I call so often and and, uh, and sometimes I feel like I'm being somewhat uh, negative uh, on some of the things. Um, but I, I'm not a negative person, but I don't go around with rose-colored glasses either. And I, try, I consider myself a realist and try to live in the here and the now and the reality of the situations that people are going through. So when I call in about these concerns, A, it's because uh, I care, and B, it's because as an opposition member, it's certainly my role to raise concerns that I'm hearing from my constituents and people throughout uh, the province. But, um, you know, while there are concerns out there, I think it's also important to reflect uh, upon our province in general and, uh, and what our future is going to hold. And I just want to say that you know, while there are individ- we know, we're all aware of uh, so many individual concerns that are out there around the cost of living uh, issues uh, with our healthcare system uh, in particular and the concerns that are there. Uh, but I will say that, you know, as a province, uh, as we look forward to uh, 2023 and, and, and beyond, I do believe that, uh, you know, we do have a lot of uh, great opportunity and there is a lot of great things going on in our province, uh, you know, whether it be the rebounding in terms of our uh, oil and gas, whether it be opportunities now with uh, wind uh, energy and, and, and hydrogen, uh, we've still got a very, very strong fishery that uh, is a billion dollar plus uh, uh, industry. Uh, we're having, we're seeing lots of opportunity when it comes to innovation, technology, IT, our tourism industry uh, continues to do well. And uh, certainly when you look at our mining industry, uh, whether it be our iron ore or rare earth minerals or gold mines, and, and now we're hearing about this huge 
uh, salt mine, uh, the potential there out on the West Coast. There really is tremendous opportunity, and I really do believe that, uh, that, that you know, in the medium to longer term, I, I really think we're going to turn a corner and we're going to do quite well as a province. My prayer, I guess, to our leaders, to our government, um, is that, um, you know, while um, we need to obviously work on, on, on getting the most out of these opportunities, making sure that our people are the primary beneficiaries of our tremendous resources and so on, and, and we try to haul ourselves out of the uh, debt and year-over-year deficits that we've experienced and so on, uh, I would just ask our premier, our leaders, to always be mindful of the average everyday person and their struggles that they're facing. Um, it's, it's one thing to look at the province as a whole uh, and, 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 you know, our financial status and so on, but we always have to be cognizant of the everyday person the struggles they're going through, and we cannot keep our eye—we cannot take our eye off the ball when it comes to these cost of living issues, when it comes to these uh, tremendous uh, challenges we have uh, with access to family doctors, uh, long emergency times, um, concerns with these collaborative clinics and, and walking clinics just not, uh, you know, being sufficient to meet the need. These are the day-to-day people issues uh, that government really needs to, you know, continue to focus on while at the same time obviously looking to grow our economy. And I certainly encourage them to do that. And uh, I'm not here to, uh, you know, be a a hindrance to that. I'm certainly here to keep government in check uh, where I can, but uh, not to hinder, but actually to help and to support wherever I can. Um, and uh, good to hear your, I mean, we often talk about constituency members, you know, and uh, there are a lot of people that come immediately to mind, and you're one of them. Um, you're uh, one of those uh, real constituency, uh, you get that part, you know, down, <laughs> down pat. And I think there's a, a lot of members out there who, uh, you know, they're at every turkey tea and they're at every uh, function in their in their district, and um, uh, you're one of them. And, uh, you know, those are the types of things, uh, generally speaking, that uh, if you do it right, you usually end up getting uh, reelected. Well, yeah, I, I mean, the first time I ran for politics and and uh, and uh, Harvey Hodder, actually, who uh, I guess I would say was my uh, mentor originally when it came to uh, politics. And he was a good friend over the years and he encouraged me to get involved and so on. And, uh, and, and, and he used to say, uh, never forget those who brung you. That's, that was the uh, term he used to use. And it was something I always kept uh, in mind, uh, you know, that is people who elected you, it's people who put you there for a reason, to be their voice, to be their representative. And, uh, and you can never forget that. So, you know, while it's easy to get con- all consumed with the bigger issues, and those issues are very important for us all, uh, it's also so important to remember the people who actually put their faith and their trust in you to be their representative, to be their voice. And that's 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 what I try try my best uh, to do, uh, you know, uh, day after day, week after week and so on, uh, to be a voice of the ordinary uh, uh, citizen. But, um, you know, I, 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 again, I just feel that those issues are really the important issues to the everyday person um, and and we cannot lose 
We cannot get so caught up in some of the bigger things, which are important, that we forget about the everyday person who's just struggling to survive to put uh, you know, food on the table for their families and to be able to access health care and so on. So I will continue to, uh, in the new year, um, you know, bring forward issues and concerns that I'm hearing from uh, my constituents and people throughout the province, the everyday issues. But at the same time, as I said, I'm, I'm also encouraged by the tremendous opportunities we do have in this province. And if there's a way that I can contribute and, and support government and some good initiatives that make sense for our province, then I'm certainly prepared to do that as well. Uh, I just want to finish off, Linda, once again, for thanking the OCM throughout the year. As I say, it's not always easy to get your message out, particularly as an independent member. You don't necessarily get that same kind of coverage and time as you know the leaders of the opposition parties would get for you know a, as an example so this is a tremendous medium for me to get my message out and i thank you for that and i want to wish uh, yourself and uh, all the uh, good folks at vocm and certainly the people in my district and throughout newfoundland and labrador a very very uh, merry christmas and uh, and i certainly hope that uh, 2023 will be a great year for us all indeed uh, you think you'll stay on as an independent into 2023 um, the, I, I often say somewhat jokingly, but I do mean it. Um, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sometimes Twitter, I'll say thank you, Dwight Ball and, uh, and your former administration for, uh, for ousting me from the, uh, from the party, not just from that party, but from the party system. It was the best thing that ever happened to me, um, as a politician, I think, and certainly as an individual. It gives me the opportunity to uh, speak my mind, uh, to speak on behalf of the people who uh, elected me. I don't have to tow any party lines. I don't have to worry about who's going to be upset with what. I just tell it as I see it and let chips fall where they may. I think it served me well. I think it served my constituents well. Hopefully the people of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, in general to have someone to have the ability to do that. And I have no intentions of uh, changing from uh, where I am right now. Uh, Pauline, appreciate your time. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year. All the very best. And uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family and and, uh, all the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks very much. It's an honor to serve. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. And uh, Dan, Dan, listen up. You were the one that was looking for the uh, phone number for the uh, rental subsidy, the top-up for uh, renters. I can give you that number now for you to call, and I'll give you a moment to get that pen ready. Uh, But if you don't have time to do that now, I'll I'll give it out again. So this number is for Dan. It's 1-800-282-282. 8079 1-800-282-8079 and Dan will give out that number again if you missed it you can also give Dave a call and he'll have that number for you as well uh, we're going to take a short break when we come back we'll hope to hear from you and we're back uh, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly who is off today we're going to go now to Charlie you're on the air yes good morning Linda nice to hear your voice again and nice to hear yours yeah, very Christmas to you. Same to you. Uh, uh, my friend sent me some excerpts from a book uh, that Peter Neary, I believe, uh, wrote some years ago. I'd like to get a copy of it. And they, and they were talking about, there were letters from the wife of a commissioner, commission of government was brought in, 
and she talks about life in St. John's and visiting the outports and so on. And it's totally, totally fascinating. I, I, I really got to try to get the book. Uh, she talks about how the fish merchants uh, abused and mistreated, uh, robbed the, uh, the the fishermen. She talks about uh, especially the corruption of of the of the of the government of, of the day. Uh, they were. Uh, what we see today as corruption would, would would be a Sunday picnic compared to what was going on then. They, they were all on the take, uh, according to what she was saying, right? Uh, but just a little clip. They, they visited St. Mary's there uh, one night and stayed, she said, at the house of a nice couple, a doctor and Mrs. McGraw. She said he too was a, he too was a magistrate as well as doctor for 60 miles of the coast. People are so poor that often, when he is called to a maternity case at night, there is no lamp in the house, and not even a basin for him to wash his hands. He is seldom paid, but when he is in the building, uh, when he was building his house, his patients flocked to help him. He had over 70 at work on it. Mrs. McGraw told him that uh, the people who have a cow will not sell uh, our milk. We don't sell milk, but we'll be glad to give it to you. So uh, he, uh, she talked about ways of repaying and so on. It, it, it's 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 so fascinating that uh, I, I again I, I highly highly recommend. Uh, but anyway, I want to get to the other topic. Uh, but you but want to comment on that? for starters, though, people are going to want to know. I want to know um, where did you find this? Is it in P- I, one of I, Peter Neary's books? I didn't find it. My my friend had a, had a copy, and he lost it, and he, he managed to get a copy at a second-hand bookstore, and I don't know how many are in print. I've asked him if he'll, if he'll try to get me get me one, so I, I don't know how widely available it is, you know. And do you know her name or anything? Uh, I think she was a Mrs. Simpson, but I imagine if you were interested, if you Google Peter Neary, uh, Diaries from uh, a woman of, uh, of a commissioner, a wife of a commissioner. I'm not sure of the title, Linda. I wish I had, because I got the clip up here, and I don't have the I don't have the book there. But uh, anyway, uh, it shouldn't be hard to find if there's any copies available. It shouldn't be hard to uh, locate the, uh, the uh, but the author and so on. You know, you've got some keywords there, so I will uh, Google and uh, see if I can find something. Yeah. Well, what else is on your mind? If you only see two copies, uh, you have to send me one, though. <laughs> I will do. <laughs> I heard the guy talking about the the uh, uh, plastic bags and that earlier on. And it struck me, you know, people talk about a technological solution to all of our problems, as opposed to uh, people uh, changing, governments changing things. Uh, most of our technological uh, uh contraptions, I'll call them, have been more or less for our convenience, not for sustainability and uh, for helping the planet. If you take plastics, if you take chemicals or any of those things, uh, thousands of chemicals are, are, are being produced all the time and very few of them are tested for their effects on people or, or, or the environment until after they cause some some something like uh, thalidomide or something, you know. And even antibiotics, uh, which, which, which is a life-saving one, uh, the problems with these as they go into our drinking water and so on, and the overuse of them. So I don't know if we're going to get a technological solution uh, to uh, uh, what's happening to, to, to our planet. 
I think technology will be more in the destructive mode as opposed to the constructive and helping us be sustainable. Do you want to comment on that? Well, uh, I guess bottom line is that uh, I guess as a race, uh, humankind has to be uh, get used to uh, being less consumptive, <laughs> uh, consuming all the time, if you know what I mean. Um, we we should be more satisfied with making do with what we have and having things at last, as opposed to um, this uh, throwaway society that we've created. Well, the three R's, recycle, reuse, and what's the other one? Um, oh, my God. Recycle, reuse, and... Uh, the other one, Linda? <laughs> I'm trying to think of it too. Um, it's not repurposed, but... Uh... No, but anyway, uh, we, we go heavy on the recycle, which is the least uh, uh, effective of all those. Uh, reduce, reduce is the way to go. For example, uh, they, they add on a story about the Walmart they've changed to these bags. So this guy was getting deliveries uh, in these bags, and they built up to such a degree, he, he, he was having trouble. He didn't, he didn't know what he would do with them. And, of course, they weren't being used twice. And I, I couldn't understand. All he had to do, I thought, was uh, 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 send them back to the, to the people, uh, to Walmart, through the guys who delivered the stuff and let them wash them or reuse them. But anyway, it was an example of uh, a solution that uh, if it's not done properly, it's, it's going to add to the problem because one of those bags it would have to be used, they said, about 30 times to, to, to make up for, for uh, its trade-off with plastics, if you know what I mean. But anyway, uh, I thought it was an interesting story with a simple solution. I couldn't understand what they were, because returning to the Walmart shouldn't be, shouldn't be a, a big deal, right? The other thing I wanted to mention, cruise ships that uh, uh, Dennis O'Keefe and others love so well. I don't know if you know, but cruise ships are allowed to discharge their waste outside the three-mile uh, limit in most areas, probably 12 in some others. I'm not sure about that. Have you ever noticed they don't uh, dump their uh, or get rid of the stuff when they come to St. John's? Uh, the ocean is basically a garbage dump for, for these things, and you know how big the cruise ship industry is. It's another example of uh, we, we, we take our home, this beautiful planet, for granted, and uh, seems like no one talks about that. They all talk about going on a cruise, but I wonder if 3,000 people in one area, if they w wonder where all that stuff is going, right? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm certain the, 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 the ocean life is not exactly appreciative of being dumped on that way all the time, you know? I'm not sure how that works. Uh, it's entirely possible that they, they dump their waste at sea like a lot of uh, vessels, but uh, they also, I, I think there's some kind of a process that's used to remove some of that when they come into ports. So I'm not 100% sure, but maybe somebody with more knowledge than I can uh, chime in. I would but say I, I get your point. Would, would be the very, very solids that uh, most of the waste uh, from the human waste and so on uh, as far as I've been reading, that all goes into the ocean. That I would say they, they look at cost, and whatever they, they can get away with, they get away with, believe me. So if they came to St. John's and had to discharge that, it would be a very expensive process. I doubt if it happens in St. John's, and I wonder how much it happens in other places as well. But anyway, the cruise ship industry is a dirty, dirty, dirty industry. And I wouldn't recommend anybody going on cruises, but anyway... <laughs>
A listener, a listener tells us, by the way, Charlie, since uh, our conversation started, that the commissioner's wife was Hope Simpson. Yes, yes. So, um, uh, of course, if you Google Hope Simpson, I guess you're going to get a variety of things. Um, yes. But uh, if you Google it with uh, Neary, Peter Neary and Commissioner, uh, you might find the name of that. And I will look for that during the break. Yes, indeed. She was talking about the, the they were out to visit Bay Roberts and Carboneer, how clean and that places were. And she spoke to one man. She said he was very well dressed, very well spoken. And he talked about his sons having to go away. I think there was four or five of them, and none of them had jobs. But uh, she was appalled by 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 some of the things that that that, that they saw. Uh, she didn't give a very good name to a Carnell, the Carnell Funeral Home. The old guy, uh, I'm sure his relatives. I'm not sure if they'd want to hear that, but <laughs> she. Basically, she called him an a-hole, but anyway, I'm not sure what the basis for that was. Oh, dear. More about that, but anyway, I'll leave it at that. White tie and decorations, Sir John and Lady Hope Simpson, and it is available through Amazon. Oh, my God, thank you. What was the name of it again? White tie and decorations, colon, Sir John and Lady Hope Simpson. White tie and decorations. Yep. Oh, my God. Thanks, Linda. I'm glad I called now. <laughs> yeah, no trouble. Good luck with it. Okay, all the best to you, and uh, again, a Merry Christmas. Same to you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. And we're back. We are going to go now to Colin. You're on the air. Good morning, Miss Wayne. How are you this morning? Grand. How are you? Good, thanks. Wanted to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And our brothers and sisters in the Jewish community, I wish them a Happy Hanukkah. Absolutely. I want to talk about President Trump and the criminal referrals that were handed out yesterday by the House Select Committee on the January 6th attacks on the U.S. Capitol. Um... The House referred uh, four criminal charges to the Department of Justice for their consideration in the uh, potential prosecution of former President Trump. I think there's an overwhelming public interest in seeing that uh, Mr. Trump is prosecuted for the attacks that uh, took place on January 6th. And I also think there's a reasonable prospect of getting a conviction on all or most of those charges. So I, th- I think it's uh, I think it's prosecution is warranted uh, in that case. Why do you suppose it's taken so long to get to this uh, stage? Because one would think, you know, something as extraordinary as what happened on January sixth of twenty twenty one would have seen a swifter action than this. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. It uh, took eighteen months for the uh, for the committee to interview all the witnesses and. Uh, gather all their documents and things like that. And, uh, you know, these things can take a lot of time, but uh, I think the in the end, the, the result is what counts. And the uh, wheels of justice grind uh, slow <clears throat> sometimes. But I think it uh, it is in the public interest that he be prosecuted. He held the highest uh, public office in the United States, and he had a complete uh, disregard for the uh, for upholding the United States Constitution 
and upholding the rule of law and 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 um, protecting his country from all enemies, foreign and domestic. He uh, gives praise to uh, militia groups, white nationalists. Uh, these uh, groups are threats to the national security of the United States, and he completely violated his his oath of office. You know. But what about the, I suppose, the political fallout of all of this? Because as we know, it's not simple. Uh, He has uh, developed quite the following. um, And uh, no doubt this will have reverberations for a long time to come. Uh, I agree. It's going to be cast in a political light. You're going to have the the Republicans, uh, especially now coming in, and they're going to hold the majority in the House uh, early in the new year. So they're going to uh, paint this as a partisan witch hunt against him. Um, I think, it, again, it's in the public interest that he be prosecuted and politics has to be set aside here. It doesn't matter what political party uh, he belongs to. If he were in the Democratic Party and the same thing happened, I would be advocating for his prosecution, uh, irrespective of of uh, which party he was a leader of at the time. And we're, and we're not even getting into the other stuff, the Mar-a-Lago fiasco with the uh, top-secret documents that he brazenly uh, took from secured facilities when, when he left office uh, in uh, January of uh, 2021 and uh, took those documents. Uh, some of these documents are the most secret documents in the United States government, uh, in the intelligence community. And uh, took them to his home in, in Florida. And when he was he was told repeatedly by the uh, Library of Congress and then the Department of Justice that he had to return those documents. He was in lo- unlawful possession of those documents. And eventually he was issued a subpoena to return them. And he didn't return them. He returned some of them, but not all of them. That's just a brazen disregard for the rule of law and court orders and the authority of courts and the authority of Congress. And one wonders what the purpose of that was. Did he share it with anybody? Well, what, what you know, we can we can speculate, but uh, Mr. Trump uh, uh, believes in the almighty dollar. You know, money comes first. Integrity uh, and character are no shows. They don't even place in that race. Money always comes first with him. So is it possible that he uh, had these documents because he wanted to try to sell them to a uh, to an adverse uh, nation, maybe the Russians or the Saudis or the Iranians or somebody else. If that is the case, um, that's a very serious uh, matter, extremely serious. And I've seen some legal commentary on that issue from from experts in the United States that he could be facing the death penalty for something like that. If that were to be the case, if evidence were to come out that he tried to... uh, to sell top secret uh, national security documents to to an uh, adverse uh, foreign power, that, that you know that would, that's espionage, and even when he even what he's alleged to have done now with retaining unlawful uh, unlawful retention of those documents in Mar-a-Lago, that's also espionage. The espionage is a very broad act, uh, the statute that 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 governs that criminal offense. So he's in extremely serious trouble. And, so what are these? Uh, you know, um... Sorry, what are these criminal Sorry, charges no, against him now? Do they include things like treason, or what? What are they? No, no. The uh, the um, the the uh, select committee referred him for four criminal charges. One was incitement uh, for a riot. Uh, another one was uh, conspiracy, seditious conspiracy, I believe. 
Uh, another one was um, uh, obstructing justice, and I, I can't remember what the fourth one was. But uh, the, the incitement charge, this was uh, signed off on by Abraham Lincoln in 1862 during the Civil War. <laughs> so this goes back to to the American Civil War and uh, and and uh, you know uh, the, the, the breakaway, the South and the North. Uh, and the Confederate armies and all this sort of thing. So this is this is uncharted territory for the United States Department of Justice now in the 21st century to to bring a uh, an incitement charge against a former president of the United States. It's just it's just astounding. And you know, two weeks ago he announced uh, he's going to run again in 2024 for the Republican nomination for president. And you hear crickets from top people in the GOP, from McConnell, McCarthy, and others. Uh, he still has a stranglehold on that party, and he may get the nomination if he's not indicted and prosecuted and, and convicted and put in a federal penitentiary, right? Well, indeed, and that is that the complicating factor here? Because we know that the uh, the Americans, uh, the American culture loves the anti-hero, if you will. Um, yeah. uh, so is this going to be a complicating factor if he indeed gets nomination? Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to create a horn's nest that uh, you could potentially have somebody who is the uh, nominee for a major political party for president of the United States, and he's facing a multi-count federal indictment. Uh, Is it possible that he could win the nomination and win the election uh, two years from now? And, And this matter could still be going on if he is prosecuted. That he's sitting in office, and then and then comes the argument. Well, I won the election in 2024, so now that I'm president, I get to cloak myself in the presidential shield that uh, that you can't prosecute me because I'm a sitting president again, right? There, there's a uh, legal opinion from the U.S. Department of Justice that a sitting president cannot be prosecuted for crimes. I, I happen to disagree with that on the basic tenet that I believe everybody's equal before and under the law. And uh, that includes the president of the United States. But, however, the Department of Justice has, has a legal opinion that uh, a sitting president cannot be prosecuted, right? So you could, you could, we could end up with that scenario that he's facing an indictment that's on the books, an active charge or charges, and he's the sitting president of the United States again. There's been a lot of talk in Canada, of course, about electoral reform and the way that our government is uh, set up and uh, how decisions are made and those kinds of things. But what about the United States where the president holds so much power? Is that a conversation that's being had? Yeah, the the president, the office of the presidency is, uh, um, you know, set out in the Constitution, the powers that, that the president has, but it's evolved over time. Obviously, uh, you know, in, in the late 1700s, uh, the, the president of the United States, George Washington and John Adams, these guys, uh, they were the leader of the country like a, like a Joe Biden is now. But, for example, Joe Biden has command and control of nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons didn't exist in the uh, 18th century, right? So, you know, the, the power of the presidency has grown over the, over the centuries, over the decades, and it's an enormous responsibility. And you need a person in that position, irrespective of political uh, uh, perspective. You know whether you're liberal or uh, you know a liberal or a conservative or a independent. You need somebody in that position who has the highest uh, character and integrity. 
And if you don't have that, you end up with somebody like Trump who just uh, has a complete disregard for the rule of law and uh, has no understanding of a fiduciary responsibility and, and holding public office and what that entails. And when that happens, uh, you see chaos and uh, disaster results, I think. And has the, the, the cult of uh, personality or celebrity around him. Yeah, and he still has a stranglehold on the GOP. He still has about 30, 35% approval rating in that party. And that's enough to win the primaries to get him the nomination. He may not win the election if he's running against Biden in 2024, but that is enough for him to win the caucuses in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. And then people start dropping out. If it, you know, people who go up against him because the money dries up for his competitors and he's sitting on about a $300 million re-election war chest. He has an enormous amount of money that, that people are still donating to him uh, for his re-election uh, in 2024. And uh, if you can out, outspend uh, your uh, opponents, uh, you, might, you stand a good chance of getting the nomination. Unfortunately, you might, there might be a candidate with very good ideas and very intelligent and articulate and has an outstanding resume to be president of the United States, but they're not generating the money. And uh, it's a money game down there. It costs over a billion dollars to run a presidential campaign. And in the end, uh, it's the money that counts, right? Uh, no doubt we're going to be, um, this is going to be dominating headlines well into 2023 and perhaps beyond. Uh, Colin, I really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks, Linda. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. And uh, we'll be back right after this. And Charlie was uh, talking about uh, where wastewater goes on board cruise ships. A listener uh, sent along a little article that was sent to us, and I don't know what the it's a, it's a blog, so I don't know where you know who this person is blogging for, if you know what I'm saying. But uh, what they suggest is that there are waste treatment systems on board, and if any of the wastewater, whether it be gray water or so-called black water, which would be the sewage, um, it uh, gets processed through this uh, water treatment system on board the cruise ship before it is emptied uh, from the bilge. Um, so it, if it goes into the water at all, otherwise it uh, is uh, collected and uh, it does not go overboard unless it, is, unless it is first run through a treatment plant. Now that's coming from, again, uh, a blog page. So again, I don't know who, the, uh, who is behind it. It's a Royal Caribbean blog, actually. There you go. So that this is uh, from Royal Caribbean standpoint. Uh, so so um, that's uh, information that was uh, provided to us from a listener. We're going to go now to uh, Charmaine. You're on the air. Hi there. Hi, Charmaine. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I've been better. What's up? I'm, I'm calling in regards to our already broken health care system. I know that it's a, it's a broken record. However, um I'm going to tell you a story, and I'm very, very angry, very um, scared. I called an ambulance for my husband Sunday morning, 5 a.m. They come. They took him to St. Clair's. He had a very bad pain. He was in a lot of pain, like he couldn't move. He was gray. He was, I mean, I've, 35 years I've been with my husband. Have I never seen him so vulnerable? So he goes to St. Clair's by ambulance, waits. No one's there. Like, there's no... There's like two people waiting ahead of him. They said it wouldn't be long. Anyway, it took hours for him to get in. He does get in to see a doctor. Doctor comes in, looks at him, says, you have a pulled muscle. Um, go home and it'll work its way out. 
And my husband said to her, um, like, you know, like, would, could you do an x-ray for me or something? And he, she said, listen, I can do an x-ray for you, but it's not going to, it'll be to ease your mind. It's not going to change the way that I feel here. So with that, she said to my husband, I'll go, I'll go set up an x-ray for you, but I'm going to tell you now, it's not going to change anything. So my husband said with that, he left and came home. The rumor that was going around St. Clair's was that people were coming in there just to get drugs. Okay, I understand St. Clair's is in a high drug area, but not everybody that goes there is a drug addict looking for drugs. So anyways, needless to say, 2.30 the following morning, my husband wakes me up by screaming my name, saying, I got to go, I got to go. So I had to call another ambulance who took him then to Health Science. My husband said the most amazing doctor he's ever met in his entire life started getting right on it. Do you know that he has a pulmonary embolism halfway up his right lung? Oh, dear goodness. Oh, my. And, like, I could have been planning a funeral for Christmas, you know, opposed to what is happening now. Like, now he's home on meds that now I now have to monitor him that he doesn't bleed to death. And I disagree with him sending him home, but I guess I know... There's no beds, whatever, and this is a, a thing that they deal with all the time. I don't know, but it's pretty scary to me. But I'm just saying, with with a premier who is a surgeon, who knows our system, why can't they work on individual problems instead of working on the whole healthcare system as a whole? Do you think that if they took certain sections and said, okay, well, let's fix this part first, and then fix the next part, you know? Like, I'm devastated. Like, I could have lost my husband. Does your husband have a family doctor? Yes, he does. But unfortunately, with the patients, like, my fam- his family doctor's got, like, an abundance of, of patients. Now, he does tend to my husband. If my husband needs them normally, he, he'll get them. But the thing was, is, like, my husband was in excruciating pain. His whole body was twisted, and my husband's a big man. Yeah, and that requires that husband. requires emergency care, obviously. Whatever yeah, happened. I haven't seen my husband's ribs in I'm going to tell you probably 20 years. <laughs> you know, like all kidding aside, but it was scary. And you know, now he's home resting, and you know he's on the proper, hopefully, on the road to recovery. But I don't understand how one doctor can do that, and then you go to another hospital, and that doctor was on the ball. He was like X-ray. Then CT scan, blood work. They didn't do blood work at St. Clair's. Nothing. Well, doctors are like anyone. Uh, you know, they have uh, they have their training and they have their opinions based on the um, evidence before them. Um, okay. Well, my husband was sweating mad, couldn't move. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, there's no way that you know he was there just because he wanted to go there. We live in CBS, so, I mean, we took an ambulance all the way out there. <laughs> so now he's got two ambulance bills, you know, and for he should have only had one. He could have been on the mend a day earlier, but no, his lungs were still filling up. Like, I have an x-ray picture that I could, I don't know, put on Twitter, I suppose, or put somewhere that shows that his lungs were half full. So, like, I just don't understand the difference. Okay, there's doctors out there that are in it to take care of patients that truly care. 
And then we have doctors who are just there. They're in the ER and they're, okay, okay, seeing you, you do this, okay, go by. And I disagree with it. I don't think it's right. Charmaine, so happy to hear that uh, they got to the bottom of it and uh, he's on the road to recovery. Uh, I know it's going to be a stressful Christmas for you this year. Well, (laughs) not as stressful as it could be, I suppose. Yeah, we got two grandchildren with us here too, and and like our whole family's been sick. Like, so like it's been really hard. But I will be making a complaint to the College of Doctors on this doctor, and I will be making a complaint to the emergency care manager at St. Clair's. I mean, I don't know if it's going to do anything, but I mean, something's got to be done. Like this is crazy. Like like I said, I could be planning a funeral for Christmas instead of, you know, having a Christmas with my family. You know. So sure. I just wanted to put it out there, that's all. I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to go now to Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Linda. Hello, Tom. I'm just reading that book <laughs> that Charlie talked about. I just I just accessed it on Mun's library. So oh, cool. It's very fascinating. Um, I want to start by thanking uh, our staff and the customers for their support this year and allowed us to give the donation, which you guys highlighted in the news. And... You know, focusing on, on the teenagers who, who a lot of times when people are supporting things like the Happy Tree, the teenagers a lot of times do get forgotten. So uh, that was an area that we felt we could help in. And, and any individuals or businesses who are in that world, I encourage them to kind of step in and help the teenagers because, you know, Christmas for them, they all have to go back to school in January. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure that they have something under the tree as well. Oh, for sure. And uh, anybody who's ever had a teenager or who has been a teenager knows how tough it can be to buy for them. 100%. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, gift cards and stuff like that is the way to go because let them choose what they want to get. But anyway, you know, I just want to throw that out there. I also wanted to kind of have a little bit different tone um, today just, just on the topic of gratitude. I, I thought I would reflect upon some of the positive things that our, that our leaders have done this year and uh, and and then... You know, just kind of highlight some of them. All uh, right, go you know, ahead. I feel, I feel like a lot of the things in the PERT report are actually being implemented. And whether I agree with all of them or not, you know, I know that they're at least trying to uh, change the, I think, the direction of the ship a little bit. And, you know, obviously the focusing on, on spending and also immigration has been a big success for the province. Um, also the focusing on the, the STEM <clears throat> And, you know, the new Innovation Center they they announced yesterday. So, you know, all these things are, are positive. The health accord, you know, obviously that's the big topic for a lot of us. But, um, you know, we've got some good people in there now, Megan Hayes and uh, Dr. Parfrey are in there trying to do their thing. I want to also highlight, you know, the wind energy, although there's a lot of, you know, controversy. You know, the province is adapting very quickly by governmental standards as they try and navigate you know, this is the new opportunities that these this may or may not present. But, you know, sometimes government just being in there with the policy is hard. Some of the times these things take a, long, a lot longer than they should, and by the time a government has adapted, it's it's missed the boat, and I, I know we're trying, so, you know, I want to acknowledge them for that. We've got EV rebates for electric vehicles, and you can see the adoption more and more of them on the road, and, and you know, again, government policy supporting that. Uh, the oil furnace replacement programs, I mean, I know there's a lot more you know, adaptation that we should be looking at when we roll these programs out. But, um, again, moving in the right direction. There was a liberal um, AGM in November, and there was a lot of really positive resolutions that were adopted. And, and, 
you know, I want to highlight a couple of them. Making redu- dramatic reductions in greenhouse gases was a big thing. Also committing to transform the food served in government institutions and also just general government uh, things, you know, specifically highlighting cancer-causing processed meats, trying to eliminate them from our diet. And, you know, realizing that a lot of times leadership has to come. A lot of us are looking for guidance. And, uh, you know, when you identify things that need to change and you do it on a, on a governmental level, I hope that that'll trickle down into people's choices in their own homes. Um, they introduced, they committed to introduce province-wide child body safety programs in schools. This is something that my wife and her team have been working on for years, and we're getting there slow, slow, and slow but steady. But I'm hoping that this year, 2023, is going to be when we really get that rolled out. Also, child abuse support in correctional facilities. A lot of people who end up in our justice system have been abused as children, and uh, and having some support in there, they've committed to look at. Um, also, some sensitivity training for the people that do deal with directly with children, but also, again, in a lot of our social programming, you're gonna, you know, we find unfortunately people who have been abused. So, you know, they committed to look at that. Another big thing they committed to balance budget legislation, which they did have a first reading in October, but that's kind of just sitting there now. But hopefully, we're going to get at that again in 2023. I mean, it's difficult, and I know there's a lot of people who would think that that would be a bad thing. But you know, until we get some legislation, legislature, legislative boundaries around our fiscal choices, I feel like you know we're kind of stuck. We obviously got the balance. We got the future fund, which again, although it's maybe a little um, pie in the sky type thing, but again, it's setting in my mind as I look at, it, as I try and step back and go up to thirty thousand feet and look at what our government is trying to do. I feel like there's a bunch of pieces that are falling into place or being put into place, and I'm, I'm hoping it's going to lead to a more sustainable province. Well, Tom, I uh, appreciate your call this morning. Uh, we're going to take a break now for the news, but uh, all the best to you now in the new year, and uh, uh, thanks for your uh, work in trying to meet the needs for those kids out there who normally get a little overlooked, I suppose. I just want to thank you guys and uh, and all the, the you know the residents of the province and just challenge everybody to take some time over Christmas and and figure out how we can all be part of a more sustainable province fiscally more healthy and uh, more and you know just both fiscally health and also uh, financial and physical health so that we can try and navigate the future and create a more sustainable province and I want to thank everybody for for taking the time to to do uh, everything that everybody does every day. Tom Davis, uh, once again, thanks, and uh, Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, everyone. And uh, we'll be back right after the news with Noah Shepard. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And we're into the final hour of the program. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. We are going to go now to uh, Oral. Uh, You're on the air. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? This is Oral. Yes. Yeah. Now, I live up on Columbus Drive there. Okay. And I say at least a thousand times I almost got killed. But my point is today is... I'm down from Alberta. My girlfriend died in my arms. And they had called photo radar. A lot of them are about $500 if you go through them, right? And I think the police should start putting the photo radars on the, on the poles. 
Now they uh, they were had introduced um, legislation for traffic cameras, which would be you know similar kind of thing. Um, but I don't know where that stands right now. There, that's been in the works for years. It could save people's lives too. By the way, certainly right. for sure. Um, and then you press your butt the button and the light lights up to go across there. Yeah. Just so you press it. Oh, I gotta wait for about fifty cars first to go through. And he will kill you, run you over. Um, it's it's scary sometimes, especially at night, I find. Yeah. And the, you, the thing is, you got to do some cognitive thinking. Like if you walk across the street and you press that light, there's no more of you. You've got to wait. Right? Oh, yeah, for sure. No, you have to be very mindful of the traffic. Alert. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Anyway, that's my two cents for it. All right, I appreciate that, Oral. You stay safe. Same to you. All right, bye bye. We're going to go now to um, Dennis O'Keefe. Hello. Hello, Linda. Good morning and Merry Christmas to you. Same to you. Yes, I hope you have a great one and a prosperous new year. 2023, we hope, is uh, nice and prosperous for everybody in the country. Indeed. Linda, I, you know, I listening to poor Charlie talk about the cruise industry, and, I, I, you know, I'm very proud of the role that I and others have played in building up a modern cruise industry uh, in and for uh, ports in Newfoundland and Labrador, and it means a lot economically to many communities. And, you know, the people, uh, the cruise industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. And it hasn't gotten that way by being led by a ship of fools. And so those who manage the industry for the various lines, I mean, they're well aware of uh, environmental aspects. And so the modern cruise ships have, you know, it's not a matter, as he indicated, that uh, they go three miles or three and a half miles outside uh, a country and uh, everybody participates in a dumping party. That doesn't happen. The modern cruise lines have some really, really very sophisticated uh, approaches to managing waste, uh, really from human waste to waste to recycling to gray and, and black water. You know, uh, they're highly regulated and uh, they work with various environmental agencies on national and regional levels. Uh, there are strict requirements that are set out by uh, international maritime organizations and and other regional and national authorities uh, around the world to protect uh, the environment, the ocean environment. You only have to look at a cruise line like uh, Royal Caribbean, for example. They have this huge ship called Symphony of the Seas. If my uh, memory is right, it's probably the largest cruise ship in the world. And uh, this ship has a zero landfill policy. And that means that the ship can deal with their own waste, ranging from recycling to um, water filtration. Uh, in fact, on that ship, it has a huge designated waste and recycling center. So for anybody to kind of plant the idea that it's okay, let's 
get outside that three mile limit, boys, and and lower it all into the ocean. That doesn't happen. And, so how is uh, that uh, wastewater treated then? If it has a, a treatment um, um, facility on board, how how does it it does it get offloaded when they get into port? Well, how does it, it work? Well, it works pretty well like our system here in in St. John's. I mean, the wastewater goes through a filtration system, it's purified, and it goes back into harbor. Uh, it's technology, and and I mean, uh, the modern cruise lines, these huge ships. I mean, they they have the most modern technology available, even in terms of dealing with fuel emissions. You know, they they uh, it's it's not like it was. Uh, uh, that TV show back in the 1950s, you know, the uh, uh, the cruise ship, the love boat, the ship sails out and does what it wants. Oh, okay. So I just wanted to make that point, and because the industry is very valuable to to the economy here in St. John's and Cornerbrook and other ports in Newfoundland and Labrador, and we don't need anybody bad mouthing it uh, when the facts uh, are the the exact opposite. So I wanted to make that point, and I also wanted to ask the Public Utilities Board, when is it going to go public with their review of their formula for setting gas and oil prices in Newfoundland and Labrador? And when is the minister responsible for the PUB? Might be Sarah Studley. I just, I'm not sure enough with the the minister is, but if the PUB for some reason is not going to let us know how they do what they do in setting prices, if they're not going to let us know, then is our government, who is ultimately responsible for the PUB, going to point the gun in their direction and say, tell the public how you do it? I think it's under John Hogan's uh, purview. And uh, they have uh, announced, of course, that they're doing this review. Yeah. Uh, do you think that will delay the the information that you're looking for? Well, I mean, you know, they announced that review back in June. I mean, I can review what's happening in Mars in six months. I'm sure NASA could. And and we have the PUB down there, and they have six months just to look at this formula and find out uh, and tell us uh, whether or not the formula is working, how it's done, and, and how it compares to the formula in other parts of Canada. It's not rocket science, and we haven't got any rocket scientists there anyhow down at the PUB. So either they've done the report and it's not good, or they've done the review and they don't want to tell us how they're doing it. But I know people are just absolutely exasperated because no longer can you depend on... Anybody on a Thursday at 12.01 setting the price, you can't do that anymore because they set it on Thursday, then they set it again on Friday, and then on Tuesday they may set it a third time. Uh, So, I mean, people have given up really putting any validation on on the PUB's first... setting of the price, which is what the original commission, when I was involved, they set the price on Thursday at 12.01. And that was the price. They only used the interruption formula when it was absolutely necessary. 
But of and course, the, say, the markets have been so volatile in the last year that just there's no way to predict and keep to those kinds of standards. The interruption formula has been used. They changed the name of it now. But um, uh, be that as it may, I mean, if you were to keep the same price all through the through the week, that it would be either artificially high or artificially low. But it would write itself. I mean, what? How, how can you set the price at twelve oh one on Thursday? You you have all this information, and you set the price at twelve oh one on Thursday, and then you set it again at twelve oh one on Friday. So what's happened between in that twenty four hour period that you couldn't set it at the one time? Twelve oh one on Thursday. This is it for the week. And I suppose that's the limitations it. of the of the legislation. No, well, uh, you know, it worked for many, many, many years. And if they're if they're now doing it another way, and that's the correct way, well, fine. Tell us. You know, once we know, we know. The the reality now is people don't know, and the PUB is hiding behind a curtain of secrecy, like many things that happen in our government, and are not telling us. I mean, surely, God, they have the review done. It's been six months. So maybe uh, the minister can pick up the phone and, uh, or the premier, if he's not out around somewhere traveling, uh, pick up the phone and, and get the public the information. That's all I'm asking. And I wrote a little story um, some time ago. Uh, the details on it are lost me now, but let me see now. Um, PUB explains price-setting formula amid criticism of process. PUB responding to criticism surrounding its price-setting formula. In accordance with the Petroleum Products Act, benchmark prices are calculated using the average of the daily high and low as published by Platts U.S. Market Scan for each day since the last adjusted maximum price. A report is received by the board each morning outlining the previous day's market data. For regular week- weekly adjustments, the last Platts U.S. Market Scan daily report used for the average benchmark price calculation on Thursday is received on Wednesday, reflecting the average of the daily data up to the previous Tuesday. So, I mean, right. it's hard to follow here, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, As oh, the yeah, results, and, and says the PUB, there at, can at times be a difference between the most recent daily prices and the maximum prices. So it always takes that extra 24 hours to readjust. Well, the government asked them to do a full review. I mean, that's the only issue now. The government asked, ordered them to do a full review. And it's been six months. They've done the review, I would think. Can they please not release that review? So we all know the, what, what you've indicated is correct. And that's always been the way it has been done. But yes, we live in more volatile times now. And we need to know, we need it validated. And that's that's what the government asked them to do and all I'm and people are asking where's the review and what does it say all right Dennis we have to leave it there thanks for your call and I'll ask one more thing uh, Linda and whenever I phone I'm open line I'm going to finish with this I hope in 2023 people remember the sugar tax and the carbon tax all right thanks Dennis all right. Thank you. All righty. Bye. We'll be back right after this. 
And we're back. We're going to go now to the executive director of the Newfoundland and Labrador Foster Families Association, Kelly Daw. Hello, Kelly. Hello, Kelly. Are you there? Oops. Hello, Kelly. <laughs> um, okay, my producer is giving me the finger. <laughs> Uh, the one second finger. He's uh, just trying to establish another line now for Kelly Daw, and we'll uh, wait for that process to continue. But uh, lots of interesting conversation uh, this morning uh, surrounding a variety of things. Uh, one being, a, of course, we got off to the start with the uh, Passenger Bill of Rights and that group of Newfoundlanders who are stuck now in Toronto on the ground, kind of uh, abandoned there. Uh, some of them think they might be home for Christmas. Others uh, may not be. So that's a difficult situation they're facing there. Uh, we've been talking about health care, of course, and uh, some of the situations in facing health care. And um, of course, we're talking about uh, politics as well. And uh, we've reestablished the line with uh, Kelly. There she is. Hello, Kelly. Hi, Linda. How are you? Great. How are you? Good. Thank you. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Yeah, no trouble at all. So uh, what's on your mind? Uh, Linda, I just wanted to call in today to um, extend holiday wishes and Merry Christmas to our 600-plus foster families throughout Newfoundland Labrador. The work they do day in and day out is amazing, and I can't think of a better time to thank them for everything they do and hope that they have a very happy, peaceful, and safe holiday season. And also thanks to staff at the office and our board of directors as well. We've had an amazing year and uh, we're doing really great stuff at the association and I'm excited for what 2023 is going to bring. I know the ideal is for uh, children in care to be with their um, uh, birth families for Christmas. Uh, That's not always possible though. How many um, foster families will end up uh, keeping the kids through Christmas? Um, many will. Of course, every situation is different, and there are so many foster families who will accommodate Christmas visits with, uh, you know, birth mom, birth dad, grandparents, siblings. Um, that can often happen on Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, and foster families will do whatever they can to make sure those connections happen, especially at Christmas, because they know how important it is. Um, but there are, there are many children and youth who are going to be with foster mom and foster dad on Christmas, and they're going to be part of the foster family for these celebrations. And um, that's really special. These foster parents take these kids in, treat them as their own, love them as their own. And our wish is that, you know, these children who are in care are going to have the same happy Christmas as any other child. Absolutely. And um, how does that normally work now? Um, do uh, I mean, I guess the foster family will do Christmas whatever way they do it. Yeah, the work with the social worker, you know, see, you know, what works best for each child and each family. It could mean having a birth family come into the foster home for Christmas. I've seen, um, you know, birth mom, birth dad get invited to the foster home for turkey dinner and do gift openings with the children in the foster home. I've seen families meet, you know, on Christmas Eve at a, a restaurant, get together for a special meal there if a home visit can't happen. It could be a, a visit at a the social worker's office. Whatever it takes, every situation is certainly unique, but I know foster parents go above and beyond to make sure that children get to keep those connections that are so very important. And it's all about making it special for the kids. Absolutely. And, you know, 
foster parents they 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 do so much and you know christmas can be such a stressful time anyway but you know they also have kids in their home or are not biologically theirs but yet they go they do the shopping and the planning and they do all the same things for these children in their care as they do for their own kids you know what and so you know hats off to them they they really do so much Absolutely. Uh, so I join you in, in wishing uh, the 600 plus foster families across Newfoundland and Labrador all the best over the holiday season. What about accommodations for um, cultural differences? Uh, well, at Christmas time, um, there is a lot of planning that goes into um, having Indigenous children get to fly back to Labrador, if not for Christmas Day, around Christmas, they get to go back to their home communities Um and, you know, if that's not possible, I know foster parents will often incorporate aspects of the child's culture into their own family celebrations. Um, so, you know, that could mean reading a special book or doing a special craft or listening to certain music. Um, it can be a whole host of activities. And uh, so we see that happen. It could be back in Labrador or it could be right here in any home in Newfoundland. Um, and foster parents ensure that children are, are given that chance to experience their own culture at Christmas time. Kelly Daw, once again, thanks very much for giving us a call. Uh, all the best to you and, and the many, many families out there who open their hearts and their homes uh, to children right across the province. Thank you. And if there are any people out there listening who have thought about fostering and you want to give us a call in the new year to get more information to become a foster parent yourself, by all means, please reach out. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. And uh, we're up to news time now with Noah Shepard. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we're back into the final half hour of the show. If you had trouble getting through before, uh, now is your opportunity to do so. And here's a rare treat. Uh, we're going to speak now with VOCM's Brian Medor, who is supposed to be off today. What's going on, Brian? Well, indeed, I am off, but when I hear Woody talk about passenger bill of rights, it brings back a lot of memories. It was about oh, 10, 12, 13 years ago, and we started getting calls from all these people around Christmas time, and they were stranded in Toronto, in Montreal, in Halifax, and it was uh, really exclusively Air Canada that particular Christmas, including Woodrow French, I knew from my days in Conception Bay South with the uh, Shoreline News. Uh, he was on council, always a community leader, a player, and always took the bull by the horn. So um, we were in fairly regular contact, and that is what precipitated. The, I did the first interview with him about that situation, and that was what precipitated the Airline Passengers Bill of Rights took quite some time. I mean, we're talking five, ten years before it actually came to pass. And really, I didn't think anything would come of it. You know, it's going to be some complaints about an airline and, you know, okay, next Christmas, everything is fine. Well, next Christmas, everything was not fine. And that's what has led to this situation. Now, we haven't heard of this for quite some time, the way this has unfolded. Um I'm from New Brunswick, so I used to fly uh, two or three times a year every Christmas. Uh, I would fly to New Brunswick and back um, and, you know, encountered all kinds of things along the way. But never a situation 
that we heard of 10, 12 years ago when it was all of a sudden, instead of, you know, five or six hour delay, instead of getting in on the 20th or the 21st, you don't get in until, you know, December 29th or whatever. Like we'd never heard of that situation before until that year. So what's happening now is almost a throwback to what we heard of 10, 12 years ago. And the, arguably, the, the airlines are in more tumult and turmoil uh, post-COVID than ever before. We know that a lot of them had to dial back quite a bit after COVID because a lot of them lost extraordinary amounts of money. They sought uh, relief from the federal government to to keep going, as did airports and the like. Uh, so it's been a very difficult uh, couple of years for the airline industry. Could that be possibly what's, um, you know, helping to make matters worse? Absolutely not. Uh, So what happened, say, when I was flying in the 80s and 90s, we also had uh, similar financial turmoil in that uh, we were going through what's called deregulation. Up until that point, the federal government controlled, uh, well, basically it was Air Canada. You didn't really have a whole lot of choice. There was uh, Eastern Provincial Airways, you know, some other operations, but uh, prices, everything was controlled by uh, Transport Canada. Uh, Then deregulation came in and we started having other airlines move into the business apart from Air Canada, including what was called Canadian Airlines. So I ran into many situations uh, flying every Christmas from here to Fredericton, Halifax and Fredericton, uh, sometimes Moncton, but usually Fredericton. And uh, oftentimes, like say, I got in before my luggage got in. Okay, no problem. Three, four hours later, my luggage arrived. Uh, Situation like that. Or my luggage arrived three, four hours before I did a couple of times, believe it or not. So, you know, miscues along the way, but we're only talking about hours. A couple of times I had a situation. I was flying uh, Canadian Airlines, and uh, it was one time on a Sunday night in Halifax, the flight, the a leg from Halifax to St. John's was cancelled because of mechanical issues, I guess, with the plane. Anyway, no questions asked. They just, uh, Canadian Airlines said, we've got you on an Air Canada flight instead of, you know, like five o'clock in the afternoon, it was leaving eight o'clock in the evening, something like that. Nothing too drastic, you know, just a couple of hours extra in the bar is all that was. Uh, nowadays, it's like gone to the extreme. It's not a couple of hours. It's, you know, half a week or several days. So uh, it's a very simple solution, Linda. All they have to do, the two major airlines, WestJet, Air Canada, put your heads together. If one guy can't fly for whatever reason, buy a ticket on the other airline, reciprocate at some point, it'll even itself out. If it doesn't, make up the difference at the end of the fiscal year. Pretty simple solution. And yet uh, they're saying that uh, while that they, they don't have a system in place to do that. So it's, it's very interesting um, to see how easy the solution could be and yet uh, how difficult at the same time. Brian Madour, really appreciate your uh, perspective on all this. Great you are. Thanks. And uh, we'll be back right after this. And we're back. Um, we are going to go now to the MHA for Labrador West, Jordan Brown. Hello, Jordan. Good morning, Linda. Merry Christmas to you. Same to you. 
Yeah, so this morning I said I was, uh, I said I'll call in now and, and you know follow up with the muscle about what my colleagues been saying. But here, you know, in Labrador, that we're actually facing, you know, healthcare crisis on top of healthcare crisis on top of healthcare crisis, and, and it's been. I think this one has been brewing a lot longer than people realize uh, when it comes to recruitment and retention of uh, health professionals in Labrador. For sure. And now uh, Lab West, of course, is seeing, I would imagine, uh, the influx of people who are being diverted from Goose Bay. And, and and we here in Lab West have been, uh, you know, having our own, you know, struggles with, you know, a full hospital and, you know, our own staffing shortages and stuff like that as well. So, you know, we're just compounding an issue uh, in, into different regions of Labrador um, when, uh, you know, in fact, you know, we, we, we've been facing this challenge for many years and with recruitment, retention and, you know, the idea of you know trying to keep the uh, you know the you know the, the role sheet of doctors and nurses full and it's uh, it's been an absolute challenge. I like I said one of the first things I brought up when I was elected as a member was the idea that you know we need a broader scope of uh, of recruiting doctors into Labrador and not knowing that eventually you know that whole thing would have to transpire to the entire province about you know the idea of recruit, recruitment and retention uh, was actually going to be a bigger issue province wide. Well, indeed. So, do you know what the the cause of the specific cause of this diversion is? Is it uh, uh, obviously it's staffing shortages? But what kind of staffing shortages? From seeing what I, from what I've been hearing, it is that is the staffing shortages are actually you know caused by uh, you know the lack of available locums, and you know uh, basically this this whole issue is actually the idea that um, you know we're, we can't even get enough locums to fill in the gaps that are being filled in by them on top of the uh, the uh, nursing staff that's already there we've we've become that we can't recruit and retain um, you know nurses in the public system that we've now leaned so heavily on locums that's extraordinary because uh, for a long time, of course, I don't need to tell you, here in Newfoundland and Labrador, particularly in rural areas of the province, we've relied very heavily on locums, and now we can't get locums? It seems to be that, you know, that, 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 that we're, what it is, is it's become a human resources issue that should have been dealt with years ago because now that you have people, you have nurses leaving the, uh, the public uh, service and working for these locum companies as well as on top of you know uh, locums coming from outside of the province because better pay better hours better this and now they're working side by side with public uh, you know public employees that you know now that this created this whole issue of public like this whole human resources issue and now that we have locums that are saying well you know it's christmas time i, I don't want to work i don't want to i don't want to work i want to you know i want my downtime like any person deserves and now this is what we face is that during the christmas season we just can't get enough locums to fill in in labrador because they want their downtime like any other person wants and this is this is where we're to now is that we've burnt out our entire healthcare system um and we saw this coming, especially in Labrador. Like we've had a recruitment and retention issue for for years. That you know we've we've faced this burnout of public employees uh, faster because this is this is this is like a decade in the making, easy a decade in the making, and now we're at a point where I have no respiratory therapists in Labrador. We have no psych uh, we have little psychologists. We have one psychiatrist, I believe, um, that's there. Uh, we got. We're short nurses in the hundreds. Uh, we're short, short uh, doctors. We're short uh, administrative staff. We're short, we're short everything. And, and the list just keeps growing every day because government and the health authority just refuses to actually 
step in and deal with the actual human resource issue and the lack of an actual, you know, uh, recruitment retention plan that is actually, you know, solid and vetted by, you know, by the healthcare workers, uh, the uh, human resources, uh, you know, addressing the burnout, addressing the shortage. And another thing is you're coming to Labrador to work. You know, there's a few, you know, it's not like, you know, going into town or working in the city or anything like that. Yes, yes, it, it, we're a remote area. But at the same time, housing, you can't find a house here. Uh, you know, other like, you know, other services and stuff like that, because this province has basically cut the good out of everything when it comes to actually providing for municipalities to actually build infrastructure for the communities that people are going to go live in. So, you know, we've cut our nose off to spite our face for decades in Labrador, and the government just seems to just throw up their hands and go, oh, well, you know, this is it. It seems strange, but I mean, um, the pandemic has absolutely upended absolutely everything. Is it time to start thinking about things in a new way instead of just assuming that things are going to go back to, in quotations, normal? There was never a normal, especially here. I, I feel like it, the pandemic didn't, you know, a normal. I think it just highlighted um, the flaws that were already there. And people realized, you know what, this is not good enough. You know, you know, and this is this is what it seems to be is that we we we've you know sugarcoated it for so long, and now that we we spent you know the whole the pandemic era, I guess that we realize, you know, I don't want to go back to the normal. You know, I want to, I, I you know, I want a life. I, I want a work life balance. You know, I want you know I want my the value of my labor to be you know to be exist with reality and the cost of living. And this is kind of where it seems to be. And then you look at where we're to in a, in a place like this. We realize a house in Labor West is unaffordable to anybody who even makes a government wage. So even government in Labrador don't pay enough to its actual employees that they can even afford a house in Labrador. This a is, victim this of is, its own success, I would imagine. Well, a victim of our own success, yes, that's one side of it. But the other side of it is that, you know, government can't compete with the private industry because the private industry put a better value on labor than the government decided to. And, you know, this is this is the thing. Like, I can't – like, here, my office is in in the courthouse in Wabush. And you look at, like, the the public service here. Some of these employees in this building can't afford to live in Labrador. And that's the that's the reality of it. And this is just one aspect of it. So just imagine the same with healthcare workers who are also, you know, we we put them on, you know, we 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 accepted their value and we showed that, you know, appreciation for them in in, in hard times, especially in times of you know strife for people, you know, or in a medical crisis and stuff like that. We put our, you know we put our whole heart and lives into their hands, and then we turn around and we don't value the labor that they put out there. And this is where it is. So these the, this is one part of an aspect, but at the same time. They're working. They're forced to work so much overtime. They're forced to be work uh, because of the backfill, all the vacancies that are there. And then at the same time, you know, we we don't show appreciation and actually like some of the strife that they're actually going through in the system. We we can't do this anymore, especially up here in Labrador. We can't do this anymore, and we actually need to take the time into it. And I, you know, I appreciate you know that we did the health accord, we did all that, but at the same time, we're not seeing that the problem, and we know this problem, this problem has been decades in the making in this area. And this is, you know, and, and, and they just throw up our hands and go, oh, we'll wait for the health accord to figure it out. And that's where it seems to be that we can't keep doing this. We can't keep doing this. We actually need to have some sort of rural medicine plan in place for places like us. 
Well, Labrador West, of course, is more prone uh, in a lot of ways uh, than other parts of the province to that that boom-bust cycle of, a, of an economy that is resource-based. And um, you're going to continue. I mean, it was a few short years ago. We know that things were very different in Labrador West than what they are now. Um, so, I mean, how do you account for that? It's, it's funny that you bring that up. And yeah, and you know, the market cycle does that. But did you know in the last bus cycle, Labra West actually grew in population? We actually got bigger. We were actually pushing more towards what we were in the 80s. So it's funny that, you know, you know we have this boom bus cycle, but actually we grew. We actually got bigger as a community. We actually had, had more people move into the region during that time, which, you know, means that, you know, there's more people here and there's more activity. But And also... We had more births in Labrador during that time, in Labrador West. We actually had more children. I had a child during that time. And this is, this is the interesting part about it is that we're a very young population, but we also have a, a, a demographic of older people that are staying after they retire from the, from the region. So we actually are we're growing, but we're also retaining people. People are continuing to stay for you know, the, entire, the entirety of their lives. And it created this you know, a more need for more health care. And so we actually realized when we built the new hospital in Lab West, our long-term care unit's too small, our acute care unit's too small. We have a brand new hospital there. It's full, full, packed in there. My wife was there, waited 12 hours yesterday. Uh, she, uh, she fell down, slipped, hurt herself, and she waited 12 hours in the emergency room up there. And she said the amount of people that's in that hospital, she says like a little city in there, just buzzing around with people because it's just the needs there. But at the same time, people have to wait because, once again, we are short doctors, we're short nurses, we're short respiratory therapists, we're short LPNs, we're short everything. And at the same time, you know, it, it, we have a massive population that needs, like, you know, we have 10,000 people in, in a bubble here in Lab West. It's, it's a six-hour drive to Goose Bay. It's, an, it's a seven-hour drive uh, to, uh, through to Quebec, to the next city in Quebec. So, you know, we're in an area that, you know, that has a lot of industrial activity a lot of mining activity. So, you know, at any given moment, you know, you could have someone with some very serious injuries and we just don't have the ability to cover it. And then here, I don't even want to start. We can, I can start talking about the air ambulance system and the nightmare that that is uh, for Labradorians. But at the same time, you know, it's just that we never really thought, or this government's in the past, never really thought that, you know what, you need a separate rural medicine plan for a place like Labrador. And at the second time, you also need a human resources plan to deal with all the issues that are being faced by healthcare workers. Instead, what we got with the Liberal government was them d- dictating to the health authorities to cut their budgets. What do you think happened when you cut your budgets? Obviously, things hit the cutting room floor, and therefore, you also have more gaps in the system because you had to cut it out because you were mandated to. And uh, we're seeing the results of that, no doubt, uh, now. Uh, how about this situation now where you're seeing um, added pressure, if you will, um, from the diversions from Goose Bay? I, I can only imagine what it must be like for, a, for an expectant mother or a mother very close to labor or in labor to be traveling over that Labrador, Trans-Labrador Highway to Lab West. Well, here's the thing. It's an added cost to people. And I know, and, and I, have my, I have a lot of issues with the Medical Transportation Assistance Program it, that, you know, I, I think I could take up your entire show one day talking about it. Uh, but at the same time, it, that's a terrible system in itself. But at the same time, so if you have a family at Christmas time who, you know, is expecting, you know, a, a, you know, a new baby into, into the world, and then you're getting told, okay, get in a truck or a car in the middle of the winter, drive over to Lab City. And here's the thing over Lab City now. Um, 
during this time of year, the hotels close for maintenance in Labrador West because this is winter and all the contractors are gone and not many people travel through Lab West in this time of year. So you have hotel, some of the hotels are closed. So you have to find accommodations. You have to stay here uh, under the direction of your doctor and wait for your child to be born in a place that is not set up for people to fly in and have, you know, to deliver. Goose Bay is set up for that because it has done that for, for generations for the north and south coast of Labrador. Labrador West is not set up for that. So we also are, you know, forcing individuals into a system that's not designed for that. And then on top of that, you know, the added cost during the Christmas season to uh, to deliver. Now, obviously, the unit's closed in Goose Bay. We have to do what we got to do. That's understandable. You know what? We have to do what, and that, that's it. We're not going to turn these people away or nothing like that. But at the same time, the forethought wasn't there because I am sure the writing was on the wall long before last Friday that this was going to be a symptom. This should have been prearranged long before that if it was going to be a problem. But this is this is it. This is the reality of it. And I think that, you know, years and years of neglect by the provincial governments, you know, of, uh, you know, both red and blue teams uh, have led us down the road that this is our health care system. And it's unfortunate that there's such a neglect to it has led to things like this. And, you know, it's not just here that's at, like, you know, in Labrador or like Goose Bay has suffered now, but you also look down the straits down in the, you know, they, they've had so many issues maintaining nurses and doctors down there in the last year or so as well. And, you know, this, this problem just seems to be spreading and spreading. So at what point do the provincial government step in and go, okay, there's a serious problem in Labrador when it comes to delivery of healthcare. When do they actually step in and say, okay, you know, all the cuts that we asked for over the years and all the other stuff that we've done over the years, you know, does it all come home uh, to the uh, to the provincial government to say, hey, uh, you know what? Maybe cutting and forcing cuts upon the health authority, especially in places like this, that you know, yes, it costs us a lot more to deliver services here, but we have a right to those services. You know, when is when does it set home that you know this was actually you know basically years and years of government neglect? Jordan Brown, we have to leave it there. I, I really appreciate your call this morning and your perspective on what's happening in uh, in that very important region of the province. Uh, thanks so much, and uh, if we're not talking before then, Merry Christmas to you. You, Merry Christmas to you and your listeners, and Happy Holidays to everyone who's listening. Thank you. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. And uh, we're up to news time now with Noah Shepard. Oops, that's my fault. I'm supposed to hit that button. Um, We'll be back tomorrow. I'm not sure if Patty will be in, but if not, it will be myself or Tim. And I'll be back in another hour's time for On Target. Stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, everyone.